How to plan for an unknown future. Hi, this is Simon Jacobson, and this program is dedicated in loving memory of Ben Sion Beryl Keller upon his 14th yard site on the 21st of Sivan, dedicated by the Keller family. It's absolutely startling and still surreal when we look at the world around us. Who would have believed? When the year 2020 began, January 2020, things looked promising, predictable, structured. Everything was just going up. Our plans were in place. And then, just like that, basically mid-March, when the pandemic was announced as, and, uh, as a pandemic, disrupted every one of our lives, all our industries, our travel plans, our summer plans, our schedules, our work, our schools, our entertainment, our restaurants, our baseball seasons, our sports, you name it. And then, of course, there's all the secondary and exponential effects. Many of them, we still have no clue. So the word unknown has become a real operative word in our lives. What does the future hold? What can I plan? When will all this be over? And then just as this pandemic was somewhat weakening, the COVID-19 pandemic, we're struck by another pandemic, the racial tensions, the senseless killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, and the outbreak of outrage legitimate outrage, but going even far beyond that, to violence, to looting, creating yet new disruptions. Where are we headed? The most certain thing we can say is that it's uncertain. Yes, we all believe, most of us at least believe, in a hopeful future, that things will get back to stable again and better than ever before, but when? Will it be in a month, in two months, in three months? Nobody's making long-term plans in the next immediate future right now. This unknown situation, an unknown future, is very unsettling, very unnerving. Why? Because we human beings like to know where we're going. You set out on a journey, you want to know where your destination. You have a GPS, that only helps. How do I get there? Yes, we may take some, be sidetracked, we may take some detours, but we know where we're headed and we have a plan. When our plans are upset and our schedules are in limbo and the future is unknown, it is very unnerving and unsettling to the human spirit. And even for young children, this isn't just an adult thing. We like predictability. We like order. Where do I go when I wake up in the morning? I know I'm here. There's a certain confidence that's built on routine, on patterns, on structures. So when that's upset, not, not only in one area, but in so many, you can imagine that it takes a toll on the human psyche. So what options do we have? What are we supposed to do? We can't just... We realize we're not in control. So you can just say, okay, I'll just ride it through and I can't wait till this nightmare is over. I'll just be as resilient as I can. Or perhaps we can dig deeper and let us dissect and evaluate and probe into the inner workings of who we are and how we function, including how we deal with the known and the unknown which in truth is always relevant, even, not even in regular times when things are not disrupted, but especially when there's such deep stabilization and unknowns and uncertainties due to all these disruptions, then it brings it to the fore in a very glaring way. So it's a good question to ask ourselves. Ask yourself, I ask myself, how do I deal with something that's unknown? And how much of our lives are unknown and how much of it is known? 
Now, when we, create, when we have the semblance or the illusion of control and everything seems to be under our control based on our plans, we don't usually ask that question. But whenever there's a trauma, a loss, an unexpected situation that you did not plan for, what happens then? Some people really lose it. They lose it. The frustrations, the anxieties of doubts and unknowns, everything that we relied on, our security blankets. So there are people who lose it, and it's very, very difficult to be around them at that time because everything they planned has now been upended. Others are, seem to be able to ride through it. And yet others are able to actually turn the challenge into an opportunity. Are these three different types of people wired differently? Or is there something we can learn, something we can acquire to teach ourselves how to look at life? So let's discuss the known and the unknown. You may remember, the, it became very popular during, I remember, the Iraq War when the statement was made, there are things we know, there are things we know that we don't know, and there are things that we don't know that we don't know. So the things that we know are obvious, a certain amount of knowledge, doesn't mean we know everything about them, but we know. Then there's things we know we don't know. We know that uh, we don't know the root of the, and the solution to the, uh, to the COVID-19. But we know that we don't know. And there are things that we don't know that we don't know. You can't even predict because we, how we, it's so not known. You don't even know whether it's something to be known or maybe there's nothing there. The Baal Shem Tov, the great mystic and founder of the Hasidic movement, interpreting a verse in the Bible that says, Haster, Aster, Ponai, I've covered and covered my face, a double covering, says there are things that are revealed. There are things that are covered and concealed, but we know it's concealed. And then there's a concealment that conceals the concealment. We don't even know that it's concealed. We can convince ourselves that it's all revealed. Life in general, how would you categorize? How much of life do we know and how much about it do we not know? When I say life, let's be specific. How much about yourself do you really know and how much don't you know? I remember a number of years doing, a number of years ago doing an experiment. I asked people of different ages, backgrounds, male and female, races, religions, one question. If one to a hundred, with a hundred being total knowledge, and one being just one percent of the hundred, how much would you say you know about yourself? How self-aware are you about your potential, about your strengths, about your weaknesses, in general, all about yourself? Interesting result. It's not a scientific survey. But it was an interesting result, no matter who I spoke to. It all came down to one significant element, age. Everyone, the younger age, the younger the age, and I think I began with nine or ten years old, explaining the question. They basically said, I know almost everything about myself. As we went through the teens, as we get older, no matter who it is, male or female, whatever race, whatever background, the older the person is, the, the numbers go down. Instead of 90%, 80%, 70 60 Most people by the age 25, 30 are already talking about 40%, maybe less, less than 20%. The oldest people I spoke to somewhere in the mid-80s said, I don't even know if it's 1%. How could I know? Maybe there's so much about me that I don't even know that I don't know. So how can I give a percentage? Percentage, you can say, you know the total, the total is, let's say, a certain amount. And now I know I'm halfway there. What happens if you don't know what the end is? This comes from the wisdom of experience. Experience starts teaching you about the mysteries of life. What do we know about the human body? I've been talking about the soul. The human body. So medicine and science has made outstanding, breathtaking breakthroughs in understanding the human body in, of course, increasing life expectancy, longevity, conquering diseases. And it's only getting more improved. But how much do, do we not know? Most scientists, or all scientists and doctors will tell you there's a lot we don't know. 
As much as we know, there's more that we don't know. Take the human mind, the brain. The brain is a mystery. Yes, we know a lot more today than we did 100 years ago. But there's a lot more to be known. As a matter of fact, the deeper you go, the more you recognize how unknown it is. The same thing in science. Whether it's urban legend or not, I don't know. But in 1898, they say the U.S. patent officer, the U.S. patent office, the director of the U.S. patent office resigned saying, we don't need patents anymore. Everything that can be discovered has been discovered. Now, it's laughable when you think about it. 1898, now, of course, you had electricity, the beginnings of photography, the beginnings of television, the beginnings of understanding of the atom, of photons. I mean, the list goes on. Electricity, of course. But now, when you look back, you say, what? This was only 1898. Go to 1998, 100 years later, 2020, now. We know a lot more. A lot more has been invented from 1898 than on. The atomic revolution, the nuclear revolution, quantum mechanics, the computer revolution, the internet. Look what we have today. AI, exploration of space. I mean, the list goes on. So whether it's a true story or not, but it, it makes sense. Because at some point we thought, how much more can you discover? So our, our, our further discovery did not make us say, oh, now we're closer. Will anyone say today everything that could be discovered has been discovered? No one. The most knowledgeable people will be the first to tell you whatever we know, there's so much more. That's what we've discovered because it's like climbing the mountain. The more you see of the horizon, the more you see how much more there is to see or potential to see. So the more you know, the less you know. Not to negate what you know. The less, the more you know how much more there is to know. So the unknown is not such a frightening prospect after all. Knowledge brings us to a point where there are things that are beyond the known. However, we don't live there. We don't dwell in that domain. And we're not comfortable. We're comfortable in what we know. Simple question. You go to a party, you go to an event, not these days, in the good old days, do you gravitate to people you know or people you don't know? Most people answer, I go to the people I know. I'm more comfortable. I'm either shy or why rock the boat or why try new things? Some of us say, I know these people already. Let me, let me discover new people. Is it just a matter of confidence? It's definitely a part of it. So why do most people gravitate? Because we gravitate to that which is comfortable. Our comfort zones. And in many ways, it's a very healthy thing. You go home at night after work. Or today, you stay home, but your home is your comfortable place. You go to the stores that you trust. The people you know and trust. Family. These are because they're all known to you, and you've learned to rely on them. Now, sometimes known entities can also be destructive and hurtful. So then hopefully a healthy person will figure out how to navigate around that. But we don't like unknowns. They're always uncomfortable. The first time you go to school, a child cries. The first time you go to camp, the first time you experience everything, there's always a certain tentativeness that we walk slowly, cautiously, because we don't know this area. And this is true for anyone, whether it's a person who's a swimmer, new waters, you're careful. We'll use that analogy soon, a bit more at length. So this is a common part of the human condition. And yet we are also curious entities. We're curious creatures. We seek. We explore. Some are driven to take the road less traveled. We want to be pioneers. Is that the majority of the population? No. But there is an element in every spirit that discovers something a bit new. There's a certain excitement about it. Look at children, how they probe, how they explore, how they, the adventurous spirit, that free abandon. So there's a part of us that wants to go there, but there's always that resistance. So let's talk about this. The unknown in this context is not a factor of weakness. It's a factor of strength. It's a result of strength. To use an expression from the Middle Age Jewish scholars, sages, 
They say the ultimate of knowledge is tachlis hayadiyah shaloy neida. The ultimate of knowledge is not to know. Or that can be, uh, and that can be interpreted in two ways. The ultimate of knowledge, knowing, is recognizing how much more there is to know, recognizing that you don't know. Not, the, the, not lack of knowledge as it is before you begin the journey of knowledge. It's the knowledge leads you to doors and to the mystery, the mystique of the unknown. Or a deeper interpretation is you get to know. The ultimate of knowledge is to know the unknowable, to perceive the unknowable, to be comfortable with the unknowable. So we're going to elaborate on this. The examples I used, most of us can relate to because they're not so, they don't hit so much at home, whether it's in science or in medicine or in general discoveries. The challenge is when it becomes emotional. Like I said, in your own personal life, that's when it gets unsettling. To hear that a scientist discovered a new approach to uh, understanding the, the, the atom or subatomic particles. Yes, it could be challenging pre-existing notions. So in that sense, there's a certain discomfort, a certain, uh, that comes with innovation and revelation. But it's not necessarily that emotional. When it's emotional, it means it's personal. That my life is being disrupted. My schedule, my, is, is, I don't know what's going to be tomorrow. That is far closer to our hearts and souls. So let's talk about that on the personal level. I spoke it on the ideological or philosophical level, on the personal psychological level. We'll analyze the word control. Control. I'm sure you've heard that word. Some people must have control. They call them control freaks. Dominating. Perfectionists. And this control can be at work. It can be at home. If you're in a relationship with someone who's a real control person, you know how challenging it can be. What is control exactly? It's a sense of, I know what, I am in control of my destiny. Very often, let's be honest, control does not come from strength, it comes from weakness. Many people who did with, whose control was taken away from them when they were children, due to unpredictable parents, an alcoholic father, I'm just using examples, things that were not predictable, that were not consistent, created that whole unsettling element of a vulnerability that the spirit and the psyche of the human being makes a determination. There's going to be a point I am going to take control back. Others, frankly, ultimately, actually, succumb and surrender. And they thrive on lack of control, which is chaos. Because that's what they grew up with. I'm not going to analyze which is which, but the point is control is a complicated term. It sounds very appealing. I'm in control. You're at the driver's, you're in the driver's seat. You're at the wheel. So of course, at a, at a, in a ship or a car or a vehicle, you want to be in control. You don't want to be out of control. Out of control is very dangerous. But can you control the deepest things in life? Yes, you can control which way your car is going to go, hopefully. You can control whether you're going to walk in this direction or that direction. And your mind, hopefully, will be the controlling force that doesn't let your impulsive emotions to get the best of you. But let's talk about things like this. Do you control love? Now, some of us would like to control love. I remember meeting a young man who was a very handsome guy. Everybody wanted him. And he was determined to be uncommitted. See, we go from girlfriend to girlfriend. It was a, it was a nightmare to, for them. One day he tells me, I met somebody where I finally found the ability to not feel guilty about not being committed. So I'm in total control. And I could always walk away, but I'm getting what I want. He saw that as some type of accomplishment. I was about to cry. I said to him, does she know about it? He says, no, 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 of course not. That's a relationship. He's figured out a way to look vulnerable, look like he's not necessarily in control, that the other, the significant other, should think she's sometimes in control. And really, he's in control. Control game. Is that love? What do they say about love like a bird? Let it fly, and if it comes back to you, you know it's yours. To try to cage it, or manipulate it, or make believe that it's not in a cage, but it's really in a cage, is a very common, common experience of people who don't, don't want the unknown. Because love is unpredictable. If I fall in love with someone, you know, I can get hurt. I'm vulnerable. 
But true love is the celebration of vulnerability. In my chapter on Torah the Meaningful Life on love, it's the celebration of the unknown. It's the celebration with someone you can trust. Obviously, you don't go out in the street and say to everybody, I'm vulnerable, vulnerable. We can get hurt. You have to know when and where. But with someone you truly love and that loves you and there's trust, there's nothing greater that you can completely let go and not be in control. That's the beauty. And the same is with all true etern- enduring elements in our lives. They're all about not control. Do you control the truth? Do you control your destiny in life? We'll talk about that in a moment. Do you control what God has in mind? Look, if anything we've learned the last few months is we're not in control. So that can completely disrupt and disturb and unsettle you. Or you can come to realize, you know what? Even when I thought I was in control of my calendar, I'm controlled to some extent. True control? When there's other people involved? There's a beauty to the fact that we don't know the future. Some of us want to have a crystal ball. You want to know the future. How many people have come to me? Please, use your mystical knowledge, your mystical powers to tell me what's going to be. I'm dating this person. What is, what's going to turn out? I'm getting a new job. I'm traveling. Will I live long? Will I be healthy? They really think I know. As they say in the world of the Kabbalists, those that know don't say, and those that say don't know. So the more I say I don't know, the more they say we know you know, because only those that don't know, only those that know don't say. Well, let me in a little secret. I don't know, and it's good that I don't know. Because it's healthy. Life is more mystery than knowable. There's plenty of things we know. But it's all part of that picture. Do you want to live in a little pigeonhole? In a rat hole, a pigeonhole, whatever you want to call it. And think you know it all, because it's only a few little, it's a little myopic vision, small little area, and that's all you know. Or would you rather live in a big open place where you can climb the mountain and see broad horizons and learn every day how much more there is to know? What would you prefer? If you're the control person, everything is about the knowable, then of course you choose the one, you choose what's comfortable. But if you're looking for truth, for integrity, for growth, of course you want to see the horizons. You don't want to learn years later, you know what, I convinced myself that my little farm, my little world is all there is. I mean, this is an aside, but how much would we all grow from this if we're able to get beyond our own prejudices and biases and racism and discriminations to get out of our own way? So the true, honest search is all about really embracing the unknown. And we do that through knowledge. And at the end of the day, it's not a paradox. As I said, the ultimate of, the unknown, of knowing is knowing that you don't know or knowing the unknowable. Is the beauty. When it comes to love, when it comes to intimacy, to sexuality, do you think we'd be better off if we had control over it, which we could dissect it? Part of the beauty is the unknown. Part of the beauty is that you let go when you love somebody and you can let go in ecstasy. Now there's a side to us that is tempted to want to bottle it, to control it, to analyze it. And it has been. Sexuality has been analyzed. Books have been written. It's become mechanical. We know the mechanics. Someone can tamper with the different chemicals in your brain, different actions, different techniques. It's become technique. But when it loses its mystique, it loses that dimension, that sensuality that is precisely something beyond us is the power of its experience. Yet, in this modern world, we want to control. Just an example from nature. The greatest things in life are not in your control. They are dependent on a process and they emerge. But we've deceived ourselves into thinking I can press a button, Amazon Prime, I have something in my house in an hour from now, or less. That's all good with physical commodities, material and commercial items. You can't do that with love, you can't do that with truth, you can't do that with soulfulness, you can't do that with integrity or truth. You can't press a button, but we want to press a button. That outer control that we're so accustomed to and become spoiled with, we want it to spread and spill over everywhere. And the wise person comes to discover, sometimes through 
contemplation, or very often through loss, through pain. So thinking you can control and you realize you can't, you come to realize the true things in life, the enduring, the eternal, those are not, you cannot, they're not a commodity. You can't purchase them, you can't sell them. They're here long before us, and they'll be here long after us. They emerge, like a flower in the ground. You plant the seed, water it, nurture it, weed, weed it, get rid of the destructive elements, and what happens? The flower will emerge. You can't pull a flower out of the ground. Say, I, I have no patience. I want it now. I want it in an hour. Do what's right, and it emerges. And it emerges as a result of a process. The wise way to look at the disruption we're going through is realizing exactly that. We were never in control, really. It's an illusion. Control is an illusion. Knowledge is not an illusion, but it is an illusion. It's an illusion if you think that's it, what you know, because that's what I know I'm in control of. You know when you gain real control? When you're able to let go of control. Let go of control. Let go allows you actually to get true control because it's not about you. It's about a higher narrative, a greater narrative. You're submitting to the greater narrative, but that doesn't mean that you are a bystander or a victim or a product. You are part of that greater narrative when you embrace it. Something comes your way. Don't look at it, oh, it's a challenge because it's unknowable and it's uncertain and I don't know what's going to be with it. That is part of your narrative. That narrative is now taking you to another stage in your life, a higher level on your mountain, to see a broader horizon. Let's take the analogy I used earlier. A good swimmer. What distinguishes a good swimmer from a not a good swimmer? They both swim. They both know technically how to swim when the storm strikes. There's suddenly a storm, a raging storm. And they're both in the water. But a non-good swimmer will try to fight the tide, will try to do anything desperately to get out of the storm to the point that they can exhaust themselves, to the point that that can cause them to drown. A good swimmer is going to do the following. Going to let go. Let myself float with the tide. I can't fight this uh, tide. I can't fight these waves. I'll float until it calms down and then I'll have my strength gathered and I can then swim forward. It's knowing how to navigate that you have control over. You don't have a control over the storm. You don't have control over the, what's going to happen, but you're in control what you're going to do about it. So in a way, it is a surrender, but it's not a surrender. The good swimmer is surrendering to the waves and the other one is fighting them? No, the fight is a waste of time, a waste of valuable resources, of valuable strength. It's navigating. It's embracing the bigger story. When it comes to love, those that can do that, love in completely different ways. I embrace the unknown. I embrace that I'm vulnerable. I embrace the fact that there may be another person with a different way of looking at it. And it doesn't make me less. I don't become weaker as a result. Because I am who I am. Created in the divine image. I have my indispensable role to play in this world. And that gives me the ability to recognize that no matter what happens, it's all part of my mission in this world, all part of my calling. Some of it I could have predicted, some I could not. As a matter of fact, more you cannot predict than you can predict. So you'll say, what about all the plans people make? They build businesses and business plans and they get investors or whatever plan to build a house or relation. Yes, that you do whatever you can. That's why knowledge is important. We were given resources. We were given faculties. We have tools. Use it well. But then come to recognize that after you use it all, there comes a point where you have to accept something beyond that your tools can directly experience. You embrace it. The person who's gone through the levels of knowledge and true research and due diligence comes to a door that says, this is unknowable now. What will happen when I actually walk through this door? when I actually choose to marry this and this person, when I choose to make a decision, there's always unknown, an unpredictability. But it's an informed choice. You've been informed by your experiences, by your intelligence, by your emotional, by your emotions. You hopefully did the best you can. And then comes a point, am I going to do this? Am I going to have two investment opportunities? This one or this one? I can't do both. So you have to rely on uh, with all the research and the knowledge and intuition and a sense, 
But there has to be a certain leap. And that is not a leap of the ignorant. It's a leap of reason. We call it a leap of faith. I don't know if I'd use that word, but it's a leap because it's not purely, it's not irrational, but it's not purely rational. Show me any major decision a person has made in their lives, whether it's who they married, who they loved, whether it's different investments they've made in life, real investments. Yes, there was a rational component to it, but there's a part where you let go after you've done whatever you can. So it's a combination. The knowing and the unknowing go work hand in hand. There's nothing, not a contradiction. The problem is in the Western world especially, we see knowledge and the unknown as contradictions. Paradoxes that shouldn't disturb us. Life is only is full of paradoxes. So it's truly a challenge for us to dig deeper and recognize that the mystique of our lives, the mystique of other people's lives, the mystique of life itself is actually a beautiful thing to celebrate. The fact that you don't control it is precisely why it's so powerful. Because it's the one thing that's not up to you. I always tell people when they travel, don't get in your own way, of your own, don't let your plans get in the way. You may meet someone spontaneously and that can change your life. So many of us are so rigid with our schedules and plans. Yes, of course we need to be responsible. You have to always be open to the spontaneity, to something you didn't expect. Now it's been thrust upon us in ways that were not easy. Lives were taken, pain, grief, still. But do not be afraid of the unknown. How to plan for an unknown future? Don't plan. As soon as you let go of the plan, let the unknown carry you. Ride with it. Now, of course, we have to do what we can do. If we have children or families or our own schedules, work, our office is opening up. Obviously, use your rational mind and listen to doctors and listen to authorities and figure it out. But don't be afraid of the unknown elements. There are going to be unknown elements. And they work hand in hand. To go back to the statement, the ultimate of knowledge is to know that you don't know. So it's to know that there's horizons that you are not yet capable of completely seeing including those that you don't even know that you don't know. It's also part of it. And then, there's the second interpretation. You become comfortable with the unknown. You perceive the unknowable. So let's elaborate a moment about that. We all sense, all the time or some of the time, that there's something more to life than just the here and now. Whether it's a sense of transcendence, whether it's a sense of a higher reality, higher states of consciousness. Something, there is a mystique to life. Whether you call yourself a believer or not a believer in God is irrelevant here, because as you know, those are semantics. Some people will not call it God, but they believe in the infinite wisdom of nature, in natural selection, that nature itself has a wisdom to figure out what's going to survive, what will be an advantage to a particular species or a particular creature or a particular entity. So it doesn't matter what you call it. But there's a sense. Some people call it awe. The awe that music evokes, art. For some of us, it's spirituality. It could be romance. There's a mystique. Now, how, much, how often did you feel like you want to bottle it? I want to get it on my table. I want to see it. You really want to see love? You really want to empirically experience some of these more mysterious, mystique, ethereal elements of life? There's a beauty when you're listening to music and it just makes you cry. And it just consumes you and you're lifted up to another time and place, transported to another time and space. Where you're not in control, you're being controlled by it. It's lifting you to let go and let it, let it just, just travel with it. It's hard to describe, but any of you related, experienced it, you know what I mean. What is that experience? Is it knowable or not knowable? It's definitely perceptible, it's definitely part of your reality. It's your knowing the unknowable. What does it mean? You're experiencing the unknowable. It doesn't matter, you don't have to understand it. It's not a scientific statement. There's so much about life that's experience that we will never know but we sense this truth. 
is truth. Now, I know in the scientific world, people say, well, that already borders on religion versus science. Now we're open inquiry. The mind has demonstrated not to just believe in superstitious, primitive, archaic ideas. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about archaic religion. I'm talking about the subliminal, the ethereal parts of life. That does not change. The fact that some people abused religion or turned religion into some bureaucracy or mechanical uh, operation, and commercial operation, is not what we're discussing. We're discussing the awe of being in the presence of something higher than you are. We don't want to lose that. That's our humanity. That's what makes us unique. That sense. Unfortunately, there's another voice that says, me, 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 take care of yourself. But there's also the voice I just mentioned, the transcendent voice. You don't want to own that. That's not for ownership. You don't want to own it. You don't want to own truth. As tempting as it may be, that I could own it and bottle it and contain it and take it out whenever I need it. It's not what you want. You want it to own you. Because by definition, the bigger picture should own you than you owning it. When I say own, I don't mean in a negative way that we're a slave to it. I mean that you are subsumed, that you are absorbed and dissolve into a higher reality as it is in the deepest moments of love, the deepest moments of any transcendent experience, that is the most freeing experience possible and is the truest experience. What we need to, to, to resist is the temptation of trying to bring that higher reality into our control. And in that sense, ultimate knowledge is to know the unknowable. You know it, you perceive it, with so much resonating truth, as much as you know that which you know. Now you say, that sounds like a contradiction. It's not. Because the experience of the mystique, of the unknown, is as profound, if not more profound, than the experience of the, know, the, know, the knowable. And you even hear this from scientists when they talk about the poetry of understanding God's mind. That almost it makes you feel like you're touching something beyond. When you see some of the beautiful paintings and art, sculptors. Same with music, literature. And you just see excellence. In many areas of life, you see excellence and literally wants, you may want to cry. Such excellence. Such. You always see there's an element of it that's beyond. Ask the person, how did you do that? They say, I just channeled it. Something greater was working through me. You hear this constantly. You hear it in sports. You hear it in literature, being in the zone. You become a channel for a truth that's greater than you are. How does that jive with the need to control? It doesn't. Control is an illusion. And again, I qualify. We, we, we mistakenly think that lack of control is the opposite of control. Like I said before, riding a bike, riding a car, out of control. The person's out of control. No, that is the negative lack of control. The true opposite of control is surrendering, letting go to something greater than you are. And it gives you far more control. The swimmer who lets go in the storm is much more controlled than the swimmer fighting the waves who thinks he may be in control for a moment. My friends, this is a time of unknown. I remember when I wrote Toward a Meaningful Life, I met the publisher, Liz Purley, She's now in a better world, other world. And my agent told me at the time, speaking with her for 15 minutes is like five years. One of the preeminent experts in spiritual literature. I actually had two and a half hours with her. So how does that add up? A lot of years. And we hit it off. It was a very interesting conversation. She said many tremendous things that really were illuminating. That came from clearly hard-earned experience. One of the things she told me is, remember... We live in a world where people are becoming comfortable with the invisible. So don't be afraid of the invisible. The way she put it was very interesting, meaning there was a time where the invisible was not so apparent. I know exactly what she meant, invisible. You have a mobile phone, the invisible forces that give it strength, you're able to communicate with people without wires. The visible forces of subatomic particles and quantum mechanics. The visible forces of gravity and electromagnetism and electricity and, and the nuclear strong force, weak force. The invisibility of 
DNA and cellular infrastructure. They're not just forces. These are the forces, the building blocks of existence itself. Recognizing that the forces are invisible to the naked eye, that our sensory tools are simply inadequate to quantify and to measure those states. But they're absolutely there. So we're comfortable. Today you don't need faith to tell you that there's subatomic particles that are pulsating, that even in a room that seems inanimate and everything seems static, is brimming with life, pulsating energy. You don't need proof to tell you that the DNA is the basic building blocks of who we are. And on and on and on. So it's an interesting way of looking at things. So we are in a world where the invisible has become very... I'm not saying we, it's still called invisible. You still can't see it. You know, we, never, we don't even know what an atom looks like. That, that image they make of like a cluster of grapes, of black and white grapes, which is protons, neutrons, and electrons, is just a workable model to make us be able to envision something. But we're com- comfortable with the idea that some things are invisible. And they will always remain invisible. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Certain things will always remain unknowable, not because we don't have enough data, because fundamentally they're in an unknowable state. State of indeterminism, a state of potential, a state of of, um, potentiality, the different words used for it. And then there's, of course, a world where things are very much defined and very structured. So it's getting comfortable with that which usually would make us uncomfortable. Getting comfortable with the realities that are deeper than ourselves. That we are one part of a very big picture. We think our box, our appliance, is where it's at. This is the center of the universe and everything orbits around you. It's not the case. Recognize that. Embrace that. And then you can plan for the unknown because... The unknown is not frightening. It's part of the journey. Your life is not defined by your schedules. It's not defined by your plans. It's not defined by your work or the sum of the parts of everything else that you were anticipating coming the next few months. That's not your life. Your life is your soul and your soul's journey, a mysterious journey, a journey of filled with mystique and adventure and spontaneity and unknowns. That which you know you have to work on. You even have to work on knowing the unknown, meaning you have to put yourself in that frame of mind. You have to understand it, appreciate it. And then these new vistas open up for us. Is silence more powerful than sound or sound more powerful than silence? Most of us would say sound is more powerful, it's louder. The truth is, in the Zohar, the classic work of Jewish mysticism, universal mysticism, I should say, it says sound is more powerful than, than silence is more powerful than sound. When the Levites would sing their songs of praise in the temple, in the holy temple, and the Kohanim, the priests, would serve quietly, their quiet was more powerful than their sound. That sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? But let me ask you, if you're sitting in a room with a few people, you're sitting at a table, and there's an, an ensuing discussion, and a debate, some people are arguing, and then you know personally that the wisest person at the table is just quiet. You say, what's your opinion? No, 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 no comment. And the loud people arguing and good arguments and very logical and, so, and the sound arguments. Is that the sign of the, the wise wisdom? The one that's loudest or the one that makes the best argument? Not necessarily. It could be the wise person in his wisdom realize restraint is necessary now. Stepping back. The power of his restraining his, or her restraining can be more powerful than you expressing yourself. Don't be deceived by the fireworks, by the sizzle. Look for the substance, the stake. We live in a world that's so easy to be distracted and seduced by sounds, by light shows, by smell, taste, and touch. Those are important. They're tools in a particular area. But there's a whole other world, the world of the unknown, the world of the invisible, 
I should say the invisible first and then the unknown. And then in the unknown, there are many, many layers of unknown. Embrace it and your life is a whole new reality. I don't know the reasons why this pandemic came now, why the senseless and tragic killing of George Floyd happened. What's God's mysterious plan? I don't know. Perfectly fine. It's unknowable. And we may never know. What we do know, and what we could know, is what we're going to do about it. We're going to embrace the unknown. We're going to look inside our hearts and souls. We're going to help ourselves look at other people's hearts and souls. See every human being for who they are, a divine image. Black or white. Red or yellow. Whatever color or no color. Whatever background, race, culture. As I spoke in my talk that I gave Sunday, in our inaugural launch, inaugural launch every Sunday, we're beginning now, I'm announcing this, at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, a Instagram and Facebook Live, half hour, 20 minutes to half hour on a chapter in Toward a Meaningful Life. So I spoke, is God black or white? This is the time when we use this challenge, use this challenge that challenges our knowledge, our control, our plans, our schedules, to discover a whole new dimension that is not as knowable as we thought it was. And then, interestingly, it becomes knowable because you surrender to it. I use the word surrender. I know that it has invokes all kinds of negative surrendering, like a, is like a loser. No, surrendering here is letting go and absorbing something greater than you are. That's what we do now. We look at these racial tensions and say, one second, let me revisit my attitudes to people, to myself. How do we look at each other? Well, how did it come to this? How is it possible that one human being can turn on another when we're all part of one larger organism and one larger choreography plan, one larger narrative? Let's look deeper. And when you look deeper, you start realizing that that which you knew, the known, was limited. There's more to know. And you keep going, digging deeper, and there's more to know. And the unknown becomes starts looming larger and larger in a good way. And you see it's like a journey. In the words of the Bashemtev, he said, for every question I have an answer, and for every answer I have another question. And he doesn't mean circular logic, circular going back to square one. It's climbing. Today I have an answer to a question I had yesterday. Then I realize the answer is not adequate. There's a deeper question. And then I, then I find an answer to that, and then there's a deeper question. It's like going up the ladder, climbing the mountain, a broader horizon, a broader horizon, a broader horizon. This doesn't mean you haven't answered questions in earlier stages. Everything in its moment, in its time. Everything accumulates. It all becomes part of one eloquent and exquisite narrative of your life. The knowable, the unknowable. All embraced by you because that is your journey. When you're able to be comfortable with that, and it can take time because we are addicted to our routines. Let's not kid ourselves. And therefore we're trapped by them. And it's very difficult to just say, oh, okay, I'm letting go. Our whole lives are based on that. Our plans, our schedules. So each of us has to deal with this in our own way. What I would suggest is not cold turkey. One step at a time, there are things that you know are unknown. You may have summer plans are pretty much unknown right now. You may want to stick to them and try to figure it out. But you know what? Why don't you just say to yourself, maybe there's a deeper plan. Maybe my summer plan has to be a little more, I have to be a little more innovative, creative, if it can work out the way you want it in the best possible way. But don't be married to your choices. Don't be married to your plans, to your schedules. There's another reason that it's absolute. We've seen that a lot of things that we thought were absolutely necessary are truly optional. Let go of one thing and figure out a way, an alternative to, complement, to supplement it. Complement, to supplement it. You'd be surprised what it will elicit from you. First of all, deeper innovation, and you'll be surprised to see Hey, you know something? I discovered something new. So the unknowable actually taught you something new that you know now. And you learn to realize that you have potential that you don't know about right now. You come to know that which you don't know. You come to know that which you don't know today. And this is an ongoing journey. Every day, there's more to learn. And there's more unknowns to embrace. And it is a beautiful journey. God bless you all to be healthy and well, above all. 
May we love each other unconditionally and recognize the divine image in each one of us, that every person on this planet was put here by a divine cosmic engineer and architect, each of us with an indispensable role to play, and each of us need the other to complement each other. We're all part of one larger mosaic. And part of the story is the unknown. You plan for the unknown by letting go and allowing yourself to float, to be carried. Use your resources as much as you can, but don't hesitate to allow that mystique, to allow that mystery to be part of your life. May you have a beautiful mystique, a beautiful mystery. Embrace it and recognize there are things that you can hold on to and there are things that need to hold you, hold on to you. Let, that be, let yourself be held, be carried by the deeper, mysterious narrative of your majestic life. This is Simon Jacobson, Meaningful Life Center. Go to MeaningfulLife.com. We have a wide array of resources, especially for these challenging times, these vulnerable times. This program is a Wednesday weekly that is then archived. You can access it any time. Also, <coughs> excuse me, also via podcast and all the platforms. We have now broadened our offerings. So if you go to our newly refurbished homepage, you'll see the schedule of events and programs coming up. You can also look at the past ones and see the robust activities and programs that we've been offering on literally every possible topic, of course, all relevant to our unique times, whether it's the issues around the pandemic of COVID-19 or now the racial tensions and um, all that, all that has emerged from that. Everyone, again, be blessed and be well. We're all part of this together. So please partner with us, share, like, communicate. We want to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, any suggestions for topics that can be, should be addressed, can be addressed. Any feedback is all welcome and valuable. It's an honor to intersect with your soul's journey and be part of a larger narrative, including its mysterious elements. Thank you again. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com slash donate.